This morning I'm going to read John 16, verses 4b through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Wouldn't it have been amazing? Part of me thinks it would be amazing. Uh, to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. That would have been amazing. Just think about that with me. To spend the better part of three years in Jesus' physical presence day and night. I mean, you'd get to see him turn water into wine. You'd get to see him heal an official son miles away. Raise a crippled man who'd been an invalid for 38 years and make him walk. You'd get to see him feed a multitude of thousands with five loaves, two fish, walk on the sea in the midst of a storm and give sight to a man who had been born blind. That's just the first six signs in the Gospel of John. And to top it all off, like icing on the cake, you know what the seventh one is? You get to be there and see and watch and hear as Jesus cries out into a dark cave, Lazarus, come out. And a man who'd been dead four days walks out of the tomb. Amen. Imagine that. And imagine hearing perfect words of grace and truth from Jesus' mouth. If you had a question about anything, you could ask him. If you needed help with something, he was right there. I mean, he had his fair share of enemies or maybe a lot of enemies. But to be with him, walk with him and and learn from him. What a privilege, friends. Do do you think it would be easier to be a follower of Jesus? Would you discover a new confidence in the, the truth of his word or a new power in the pursuit of godliness? I just wish I could be there, Pastor. How come it had to be Peter, James, and John? How come it couldn't have been me? Well, if trading places in history with Jesus' disciples was actually possible for you, Christian, you would be a fool to do it. Sorry, I totally set you up. (laughs) You'd be a fool to do it. Absolutely foolish. Why? Because the spiritual blessings that are presently yours at this moment in redemptive history are immeasurably better. Look at verse 7. It's far better for Jesus to be with us by the Spirit than with us in body alone. 
I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Notice that excitement is not at all what Jesus' disciples thought or what they felt when he first announced his imminent departure. And at the end of 15, warned them of all this persecution that was to come. They did not get excited. They were grieved, confused. Look at verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Let me tell you something about that sorrow. That that turmoil in their soul exposes the depth of their self-centeredness, friends. Their, Their preoccupation with their own comfort. Their, their lack of interest in what, what God is doing. When, when Peter asked, all the way back in John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? He wasn't so much interested in understanding the purposes of God as he was interested in protesting Jesus' departure and arguing that he deserved to remain with Jesus on account of his spiritual loyalty. Little, little did he know how much he needed a savior. And Jesus marvels in John 16 verse 5 that that even when the disciples have this prime opportunity to ask him, to talk to him, to, to inquire of him, to pursue a deeper understanding of his saving mission, they don't ask. Because they're not really focused at all on the, the priorities and purposes of God. They're just thinking about how how's this affect me? What's in this for me? Is my life going to get harder? Yeah. But I love how the self-centered root of their sorrow doesn't stop Jesus from comforting them in their sorrow. Do you notice that? It's not like he says, you shouldn't be sad. Therefore, I'm not comforting you. (laughs) Right? I mean, how many times in our own life can we resonate with that, identify with that, where we're grieving, we're sad, but it's, it's because we lack faith. Or we're not trusting God. I'm not, I'm not saying if your faith is great, you'll never be sorrowful. Read the Psalms. But I am exceedingly thankful that Jesus is patient and gentle. Even when your suffering is self-imposed. So what's he say? You, you think, guys, it's better for me to stay than to leave. You think my departure is this big disadvantage. It goes on the cons side of the chart as far as you're concerned. Here's the reality, guys. You should want me to go away. Come again, Jesus. (laughs) You should want me to go away. Yeah, very much so. Why? Because, guys, if I don't walk the obedient path of death and resurrection and ascension, you cannot ever receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. In other words, the, the reason Jesus needed to depart, to, to go the way of the cross, listen carefully to this, friend, is not simply so your sins could be forgiven or so you could be righteous in the sight of a holy God as necessary as those things are. Okay, what, what Jesus has his eye on what he longs to see come to pass. What, mind you, forgiveness of sins and righteousness in the sight of God are ultimately designed to achieve, to secure, is what? The promise of God with us. The the, the blessing of intimate relationship with the creator and redeemer of God's people experienced through the gift of the spirit. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness in the sight of God are not ends in and of themselves. They're means to relationship. They're they're means to intimacy. They're they're means to fellowship and life and joy and, and presence and access with God. Listen to Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. Apostle Peter. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. What's it all building toward? He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the Holy Spirit. Now in reading that, know this, the Spirit was not waiting 
on the bench or in the dugout until Jesus showed up. Okay? It wasn't like he, you know, Jesus is kind of the starter, but, but I'll let you in the game eventually. You've got some votes too. No, no, no. Okay? That the spirit was active in creation. He was active in redemption all throughout the Old Testament. But, but after Jesus' ascension, what happened? The crucified and risen Lord poured out the Holy Spirit in new covenant measure. Abundantly more so than he had ever been poured out before. So, so just consider real quickly the breadth of the Spirit's work at this moment in history. The breadth of his work. I mean, when Jesus walked the earth as a man, he could only be in one place at one time in and through his human nature. You realize that. Ministering to a relatively small handful of people. What, what is the spirit of God doing today? He, he's working in the hearts of millions of men and women all over the planet, all at the same time. Or, or consider the depth of the spirit's work, right? When Jesus walked the earth as a man, what did he do? He was, he was caring for people. He was teaching people, instructing people, calling people. Inviting them to follow him from without. Today, what's the Spirit doing? He's transforming people from within. He's granting an internal power to trust and obey God that all the saints of old in the Old Testament, though they experienced this ministry, could scarcely have dreamed. I mean, the idea that, that we're not bringing sacrifices to a physical temple because we have become God's temple. I mean, they would have lit you up for craziness, right? They couldn't have imagined that. But that's what God is doing now at this moment in history. So I say it is exceedingly good to know Jesus is coming back in bodily form. Amen? And it is exceedingly good that he left in bodily form in the first place. Both are good. (laughs) Because when he left, he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And that's such good news, friends, because the mission of God in the world and in the church advances through the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you hear me say that and you think, how so, Matthew? How does the mission of God advance? In the world, in the church, through the work of the Spirit. Well, that's the structure of this sermon. Two points. Here's the first. The Spirit convicts the world of their need for Jesus. The Spirit convicts the world of their need for Jesus. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, this isn't the pastor's idea. This is Jesus himself speaking. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Don't, don't just blow through that so we can sing another song, okay? To, to be convicted. Think about that. In a spiritual sense, is to be gripped. To be gripped by a trembling knowledge in the depth of your soul that something you have thought, something you have done, or who you are is morally wrong in the sight of God. That you're not outside the problem of evil. You're actually part of it. And in this case, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will convict men and women in the world of their guilt in three areas so that they see their need for him. Here's the first, look at verse nine. When he comes, the spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What what does the world believe when it comes to sin, to wrongdoing? Think, Think about this. Most of us, myself included, you know, we, what do we tend to think, naturally think? Well, that we're not really bad people, <laughs> right? I mean, we've all made mistakes. Don't be one of those idiots who's like, I'm perfect. <laughs> no, you're not. 
but, but we're not, it doesn't make you a bad person, right? I mean, we're basically good. We just need to listen to our better angels. But when the Holy Spirit grants the grace of conviction, what happens to that? Well, well, my conscience is stricken with an acute awareness that, that I am hopelessly and inexcusably guilty in the sight of the God with whom I have to do. I'm accountable to him. And I haven't just made a few mistakes or, or done some bad things in, in, in act and in attitude and nature. I, I have lived and existed in opposition to God's rightful authority. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I, I don't just start to wonder about that in my mind. I, I, I begin to feel that, that trembling awe in my soul. That's me. That's not just a, a spiritual idea out there. That's That's me. My, my biggest problem is, is not how to make more money or how to get healthier fast or, or be truer to myself. My biggest problem is I have not believed in Jesus. I haven't trusted in him. I haven't submitted to him. I've been living my life my way instead of, instead of his way. Con- conviction of sin means feeling your desperate need for someone to rescue you from yourself. And the judgment you know you deserve. And that, that, con- that conviction, feeling the depth of our need for salvation, that is a painful gift, friends. At least up front. But it is a priceless gift. That, that's an unspeakable act of love on the part of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because recognizing I have a sp- massive spiritual problem is the first step toward receiving this only solution to my problem. It's a massive gift. If you, friend, are experiencing conviction of sin in any way, don't run from that thinking, ah, if that were a God thing, it would feel more loving and affirming. Is it loving for a holy God to affirm sin? Is it it morally right or just? For the perfect creator to, to look at our corruption and our rebellion and our perpetual but sometimes covert shaking our fists at him and saying, ah, don't worry about it. He does that. He ceases to be God. You don't want him to do that. He convicts the world of sin. Second, look at verse 10. The spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. What what is the world? What what do we all tend to naturally, intuitively think or believe when it comes to how we gain right standing with God? How do do we tend to roll with that or think through that? You know, assuming he exists as someone in the world. Well, we tend to think that all he requires is that you be the best possible version of yourself. You don't have to be perfect because no one's perfect. I mean, probably God's not even perfect. I have some questions for him. But he knows that, you know, so, so give it your best shot. Try to be a decent person. Just don't be a Hitler or a Stalin and you'll be fine. Heaven bound. Be careful if you laugh about that, by the way. Because that pride is still in my heart. Right? Yours? Thinking what? that I can actually do enough good things or be a put together enough dad or pastor, Christian, to earn God's love or acceptance or approval. Be careful to not laugh lest you convict yourself. Because when the Holy Spirit grants the grace of conviction, what happens? We begin to realize, I realize, there's only one person in the history of the world who's ever earned right standing with God. 
And it's not St. Mary or St. John or Mother Teresa. It's Jesus, friend. It's the obedient son of the living God. Righteousness is not something I, I earn for myself by doing good things. Righteousness is a gift from God. It's a gift Jesus gives and he alone can give because he earned it on our behalf. For who? For people like me and you who perpetually fail to keep God's law ourselves. And so when he speaks in verse 10, look there about going to the Father. Guys, I'm going to the Father, Jesus says. He's talking about what? Creating a way for sinners to come home to God. Through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, as the Apostle Paul declares, Romans 1 verse 6, I am not ashamed of the gospel, of of what Jesus is doing, the righteousness he's securing through death, resurrection, ascension. Why not? Because it's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That's not your righteousness, friend. That is Christ's righteousness freely given to you through faith in him. Changed the course of Martin Luther's life when he got that right. And listen, to, to despair of your righteousness to perceive the poverty of your good works and and rejoice in the beauty of Christ's righteousness, that is a priceless gift too. (laughs) It's an unspeakable act of love on the Spirit's part. Why? Because embracing God's salvation, the solution to my problem, requires what? Recognizing the futility of my own attempts to solve the problem. I cannot receive the true righteousness of God until I am first convicted that my attempts at righteousness aren't going to work. I have to see the problem for what it is. I have to see the solution for what it is. Third, look at verse 11. The spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. What's so wrong with the world's judgment? With our intuitive evaluation of what what is right and wrong or true or false. Well, we, we tend to default to this, right? If it feels true, it must be true. If it looks good, it must be good. Believing something is right makes it right. And if you try to tell me otherwise, you're just exposing yourself as an oppressor. You're part of the system. I mean, besides, is, is there really a God out there who's going to hold all of us accountable for our actions? You actually seen him? Hasn't the world been going on the same way it's always gone for, for millennia? I mean, why, why should I think that This God's judgment matters more than mine. There's no end to this human story. It's just a cycle of the survival of the fittest. When the Holy Spirit grants the grace of conviction, what happens to that? Well, I begin to realize that my judgment that judgment I was talking about is nothing more than the validation of my own desires. That's all that is. I'm saying something is true or good simply because I want it to be true or good. Not, not because I, it's actually true or good. I, as I experience the grace of conviction, judgment, I begin to realize that the quest for truth that doesn't end in a, a disillusioning pile of cultural constructs Objective truth is found in God. It's defined by his word and decisively revealed to us through the person work of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. I begin to see that the judgment that matters isn't mine or yours. It's, it's God's. He's the standard. He's the benchmark. And, and what has that God, our judge, told us about his judgment? That, that we're living in the midst of a cosmic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. And that the triumph of his kingdom and the vindication of all who serve him is so certain, so secure, that Jesus speaks of it in verse 11 as if it's already happened. 
the ruler of this world, the kingdom of this world is now already judged. How so, God? (laughs) How so? What what gets with that? How did Jesus defeat the rule of this world, Satan? How did he do that? Well, he did it by, by delivering us from two things, from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. Think carefully about this. Jesus destroyed Satan's ability to condemn you by delivering you from the guilt of sin, dying in your place. And he destroyed Satan's ability to enslave you by freeing you from the mastery of sin, giving you the Holy Spirit, so you could be free to serve the living God. That's how he defeated Satan. He delivered you from the domain of darkness purchasing your freedom at the cost of his blood. Colossians 2.15, through the cross, God what? He disarmed the rulers and authorities, amen, and put them to open shame. Translation, he wrote loser over them, (laughs) okay? By triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. Psalm 2 verse 10, here's what that means, friends. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, and those of them who, like me, are are tempted to follow them. How we think about our own judgment, right? We're in this challenge. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Be loyal to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Knowing that, believing that, get convinced in your heart that a a day is fast approaching when, when small and great will all appear before the greatest size, before the, the judgment seat of King Jesus, knowing that is a priceless gift, friends. It's an unspeakable act of love on the Spirit's part. Why? Let's connect the whole train here, okay? Because salvation requires not only recognizing the true nature of the problem, sin, and the true nature of the solution, righteousness, but also the urgency, the necessity of turning from sin and holding fast to Christ in light of what? The prevailing judgment of God over the entire universe. So so remembering, Lord, help us to remember that it's the spirit who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That has some most significant implications. Okay? So, Let's just mention a few by way of application. First, the work of persuading people we love, speaking to Christians here, okay, to join us in the joy of knowing Jesus is ultimately God's work, not your work. Has he sovereignly ordained to use us? Yes. Does it matter that you make the gospel as clear as you can when you are talking to people in the world? And that your life commends instead of detracts from the truth of what you are professing. Yes, absolutely. But listen, the grace of conviction of sin, righteousness, judgment is not yours to grant, Christian. Not yours. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. You you can say all the right words in all the right ways at all the perfect times. And the spiritually dead heart in the man or woman sitting across from you or sleeping quietly in a bedroom down the hall or on the other end of the phone or text conversation will remain completely cold to the things of God. But... When the spirit moves, 
when the Spirit moves, when, when he pours out the grace of conviction, what happens? The spiritual lights come on. <laughs> Have you experienced that? Have you seen that? The, the lights come on, faith rises, and a new life is born. Is born. It, it is, it's a miracle, friend. And it doesn't matter if you walked in the ways of the world for decades and were dealing drugs and sleeping with a hundred people or if you grew up in the church and as far as you can think and know and remember, you've always trusted and loved Jesus. Regardless of your story, if you are trusting and obeying Jesus because you see the truth of sin and righteousness and judgment, that's a miracle. That's God's work. That's the Spirit's work. That's not your friend's work, your parents' work. And And by the way, let's bring some application to parenting here, okay? While we're at this. I think so much of the burden. I've got three boys. This isn't hypothetical. So much of the burden, the the anxiety, the, the ceaseless striving, and the attempted behavioral modification that that we experience as moms and dads can we be honest, is from trying to do the Spirit's work for him. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe if I just administer the, the right amount of discipline or, or I, I, I protect them from all the bad influences out there all the time. <laughs> Look out for that smartphone thing. Or maybe if I convince them to meet with a pastor. I love to talk to kids. That wasn't a dig. But if the pants fit, wear them. <laughs> maybe then the spiritual lights will come on. We, we can think that, right? I can think that. But, but if we live like that, if we parent like that, if we think it's our job to convict our kids or we have power to, to bring them to faith instead of trusting the Spirit's work, listen, mom or dad, two really bad things are going to happen, okay? Listen carefully. First, you'll end up focusing on their behavior more than on their heart because their behavior feels like something you can control. And in the process, we create little Pharisees who know how to keep all the rules on the outside until they leave the home and the whole facade comes crashing down. And we wonder how it happened. Here's the second bad thing that happens. We think we can do God's work for him. We, we functionally teach them through our example that God is really not worthy of their trust. Thought about that? What, what your kids need to see the most from you, okay, is the example of a mom or a dad who is cheerfully convinced that only God can change the heart. And... Don't forget, God is able to change the heart and God is eager to change the heart and he has promised that as we are faithful in our weakness to preach the gospel and pray for our kids, he will change hearts. But that's not because you got your preaching or your praying or your reading assigning or your setting up meeting with pastor thing right. (laughs) It's because the spirit of God is gracious, merciful, Your job as a parent is to show your kids through the way you trust God's work in them that he's actually worthy of them trusting his work in them. Remember that. Lord, help us. Let me mention a final application under this point. Spirit convicts the world about our need for Jesus. Notice how Jesus defines. This is like a five-course meal in here. Oh, Lord, help. Notice how Jesus defines each one of these issues where the world needs the grace of conviction in relation to his person and work. Okay, follow me here. What is sin? The unbelief that rejects Jesus. What is righteousness? A gift from God received through faith in Jesus. And why does it all matter? Because it's not your judgment of Jesus, but Jesus' judgment of you that will ultimately prevail. 
In the end, Jesus wins, which means nothing is more important than your relationship to Jesus. In other words, the conviction, here's the important point, the conviction the world needs the most from God through the Holy Spirit has everything to do with Jesus. So how's that go from preaching to meddling? Well, it means the primary work the Spirit is doing today is not convincing people to be heterosexual or to stand for the national anthem or to hate Donald Trump or to march for racial justice or whatever issue you are tempted to get all worked up about on social media. What, what, the, what the world needs is not more Republican Party members or, or a return to the cultural values of the 1950s. What the world needs is to see Jesus and love Jesus and trust Jesus and gladly obey Jesus because we know he's the delight of our hearts and nobody else satisfies like he does. What, what are we thinking, friends? What are we thinking when we show the world that something other than Jesus is worthy of more of our passions? Ask someone you trust, if you're on social media, to just read through three, four months of your posts, tweets, whatever you want to call them now, and be honest with you and say, Am I making much of something else more than Jesus? It could be a good thing. Okay? I'm going to vote this fall. I'm not telling you how. But your greatest passions ought to be the mere image, the reflection of the Spirit's greatest passion. What's the Spirit's greatest passions? Look at verse 14. He will glorify me. He'll make much of me, Jesus says. What the world needs is to see Jesus, trust Jesus, love Jesus. But that's not just what the world needs. That's what we need, friends. That's what the church needs because we don't outgrow our need for Jesus. So let's end with a little bit less time on point two. <laughs> the Spirit guides the church in our knowledge of Jesus. Why is it so good that Jesus left in body so he could be present in spirit? Two reasons. Because the Spirit convicts the world of our need for Jesus. Spirit guides the church in our knowledge of Jesus. Hang with me here. Put your seatbelt on. Look at verse 13. Because <laughs> I hear some chili calling. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. You, the people of God. What sort of truth are we talking about, Jesus? Look at verse 14. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine, Jesus, and declare it to you, people of God. Think about that. All that the Father has. What's the Father have? Love, wisdom, majesty, power, authority, compassion, holiness, everything that's true about his divine character has been definitively and decisively revealed, made known in the person and work of Christ. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, in other words, we know what God the Father is like because God the Son has made him known. And how do we grow? Here's the question. How do we grow as the people of God in our grasp, in our, our understanding, our delight in the glory of God in Christ? Well, through a twofold work of the Spirit. Briefly, first, the Spirit inspired the apostles, Jesus' followers, to do what? to communicate the truth about him through the written words of the Bible. 
was the spirit was behind the work of inspiration, okay? And I'm not just talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it all unpacks the significance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and makes a claim on how we live. The entire book is about Jesus from beginning to end. So we we grow in our understanding. He guides us in all the truth about the glory of God revealed in Christ first through the gift of inspiration, inspiring the word of God. But second, and in a primary way for us, at least the spirit grants the gift of illumination as we read the word of God. I should have brought a flashlight up here with me, but that would have required turning out the lights in this room and I could have gotten in trouble with, I don't know, that might not have been good. So just imagine for me that it's pitch black and that I've got a flashlight, okay? And if I say to you, this flashlight will illuminate this dark room. What am I saying? Well, I'm saying that, it, that if I turn it on, it's going to fill the room with light. That, that it, it takes things that would otherwise be hidden and that you would trip and fall over <laughs> or just not see and enjoy, and it makes them visible. The, the flashlight doesn't create new furniture or new windows or, or new flooring. It simply reveals what's been there all along. That is exactly how the Spirit works when it comes to helping us understand the written word of God. He's like a flashlight. He he opens our minds, enabling us to to see and understand all that God has revealed about his glory in the person of Jesus Christ through his word. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received as God's people, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That the Spirit doesn't just inspire God's word and thus help us to know the truth of God in Christ. He actually helps us understand God's word as we're reading it, listening to it, hearing it preached, whatever form you're talking about, so that it makes sense. So so that the divinely intended effect comes home to our hearts. All he's doing is taking what Jesus has and is, the self-revelation of God, and declaring it to us. That the Spirit's helping us understand the word that bears witness to Jesus. That's how he guides us into all the truth. So what's the application from this? A couple things. First, before you read your Bible, you should ask for the Holy Spirit's help. (laughs) Don't overlook the obvious, okay? And when you're reading your Bible and, and you come across something that's hard to understand, don't assume, well, oh boy, if I just had better study notes or a, if I could just call Matthew right now or if I could just, you know, get that mature friend to explain this to me. I mean, this is why I don't read this Bible because it makes sense to everybody else, not to me. I love the fact that the word says there are things in the word that are hard to understand. But don't miss the obvious. If you find something hard, I don't think, I don't get that. Stop, Pray. Holy Spirit, would you help me right now? Seems simple? Maybe. It's actually supernatural. <laughs> so ask for his help. Here's the second application. Look at verse 13 in particular. Because, because Jesus equips us here to distinguish the illumination of the Spirit of God from other spirits, other voices. Okay? He, sa- he says, the spirit who guides us in the truth never acts as a rogue agent. He what? He doesn't speak on his own authority. He only speaks and declares what the father has revealed to the son and the son has communicated to the spirit. So, application, if you're listening to a sermon or you're reading a book, or you're having a conversation with somebody and and they say to you that after praying long and hard, the spirit impressed something on their heart or mind and they're so excited to share it with you. You need to test the truthfulness of their words by asking, is what they're saying consistent with what Jesus has already said? 
It doesn't match. You know, circle, circle, triangle, triangle, right? Does it line up? So many people justify doing something that violates the word of God because they feel a peace about it. As if, as if that word just absolves me of my sin or, or as if the spirit who inspired the word at some point would say, yeah, I've kind of changed my mind and I'm actually going to lead God's people in a contradictory direction. No, he, he, he never does that, friends. The, the spirit's calling card, if this image helps you. The, the trademark sign, the, the logo of his authentic guidance and work is always affirming and applying the word of the gospel. That's how he rolls. It's why Jesus says in verse 14, he will glorify me. So if someone says in the name of being inspired by the spirit, something that is inconsistent with the gospel or fails to make much of Jesus, then you can know for certain it is not the Holy Spirit that is guiding them. No matter how much they claim he is, that the Spirit's primary work, the main way he guides the church is by drawing our attention to Jesus, glorifying Jesus by helping us see Jesus and love Jesus and and obey Jesus. So it works like this where the Spirit is moving, Jesus is exalted. And where Jesus is exalted, you can know the Spirit is moving. The authentic ministry of the Spirit is always word-centered, Christ-focused. Here's the last application. What Jesus says here should really impact the way we evaluate our Sunday mornings. What's going on right now? Okay? Are there times when Kevin or Bruce are leading us in singing and God feels so close? so near. Your, your heart's just practically bursting with joy. Absolutely, right? At least I've experienced that. I think, praise God for those times where, where he manifests his presence in a, in a really pronounced way that we can f- practically feel. But what if the next week you don't feel the same feelings or the music doesn't inspire you in the same way. Does that mean that the spirit of God is, at least on that Sunday, missing in action? Or, or that the person on stage, you know, I just don't feel like they were spirit, spirit-led this morning. Well, I'm not exonerating leaders, including any in our midst, myself, who are failing to follow the lead of the Spirit, we can do that, right? We can grieve the Holy Spirit. But here's what I am saying. The biblical litmus test for whether the Spirit of God is present in our midst on a Sunday morning is this. Was the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and delighted in and lifted up that we might see Jesus and love Jesus and know Jesus? Did did we make much of Jesus this morning? What was the truth about the glory of the Son of God sung and prayed and preached and declared? If it was, it doesn't matter what you feel, friend. That means the Spirit of God was very much present and in action. Remember that. He makes much of Jesus. It's his calling card. So, so if the gospel was proclaimed, If the truth about Jesus was proclaimed, then no matter what you felt that day, the spirit was moving and the spirit was working. Praise praise God for that. And we should be profoundly grateful because, because our awareness of the spirit's moving and working will ebb and flow on the tide of our changing emotional frames. But that doesn't stop the spirit from working because when Jesus is lifted up, he's always working. Put that together, it means being a spirit-led church requires being a gospel-centered church. And I am so thankful for this church. Friends, there is no other church I'd rather pastor. Because by the grace of God, I think he's helping us hold on to both those things. Because they cannot be separated. May they never be here. The spirit convicts the world of their need for Jesus. 
And he guides the church, this church, in the knowledge of Jesus. Praise God for sending us a helper. Amen. Praise God we are not alone. It is better by far for Jesus to be present with us by the spirit than for him to be present with us in body alone. We have it so good at this point in history. Let's pray. Father, as we sing this final song and then run out and eat piles of chili, (laughs) for which I give you thanks, I ask that you would come and move in our midst. Thank you for the way you've already been doing that today, Jesus. I pray that you would make us as a people, two things, Lord, more confident in the supernatural power you have, Spirit, to convict. Would that make us joyful and faithful in talking to people about you? And then, Lord, would you, would you make us more dependent on your help to understand your word and more grateful for the privilege of, of you moving and working in our midst whenever Jesus Christ is proclaimed and exalted? Or we don't want to be a people that go home on Sunday and think, well, that was mildly uninspiring. We, we want to be a people that that rejoice and delight that the name of Jesus was lifted up. And that because Jesus was lifted up, the the spirit was mightily on the move. Help us to see you for who you are. And thanks again for making yourself known. Lord, we sing this song to you as a prayer that you would come and move and that you would build this church by your spirit for your glory. Amen. Amen.